Gagan and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Some people seem to have things happen to them, while others make things happen. Richard Brindle and Dan Burrows of Fidelis are in the latter category and are about to make history by becoming the first traditional balance sheet insurance company to split its underwriting and its capital into two independent entities. It's a typically bold and fascinating move, and one which throws up many questions. Are they doing this because valuations of balance sheets are so low and those of MGAs are so high? Or are there other motives for going through such a painful process? The answers are all here. Richard also unloads a huge amount of his insight on the state of the reinsurance and specialty markets as we head into the 1-1 renewal season. It's the toughest talk I've heard in my career, and that includes the post-Katrina, Rita and Wilma market of 2006. This all adds up to one of the best podcasts you'll listen to this year, or any year. Richard is the first of the two to speak. Enjoy the podcast. This episode is supported by Oxbow Partners. Oxbow Partners is a management consulting business specialising in the London, Bermuda and European insurance and reinsurance markets. In fact, in 2021 and 2022, they were named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. It's fascinating speaking to the team about the kinds of topics they're supporting. Helping reinsurers take a strategic view of their operating models. Designing smart follow syndicates in the Lloyds market. And developing ESG responses. The company's strapline talks about giving executives a fresh perspective. So if you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, I'd recommend giving the team at Oxbow Partners a call. Richard and Dan, welcome to The Voice of Insurance. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mark. Nice to be back in Monte Carlo. Absolutely wonderful to be here. We're here to talk about this very audacious deal that you're trying to put together, this bifurcation of your business. Would you have done this deal if the valuations for balance sheet businesses weren't so much in the doldrums and the valuations for fee-earning MGA businesses so high at such record highs? I think this deal was fundamentally driven by the perverse outcome of both public and private companies where underwriters who are good at what they do as they progress through their careers increasingly do less and less, guess what, underwriting, which is really ridiculous when you think about it. And what really crystallized my mind was when we hired Clive Washburn, you probably know, Mark, into... Absolutely, who's our best podcast and the most downloaded. Oh, yes, yes, I listened to it. Yes, it's very entertaining. I can't promise quite quite as racier (laughs) podcast this morning. But, you know, Clive came to me as an old friend and colleague of 30-odd years and working for Beasley, which is an excellent company. But he'd sort of progressed through the ranks. He was a main board director. He seemed to spend most of his time away from the box, away from underwriting. You know what Clive's like. He wants to be in the trenches transacting business every day. And he said to me, you know, is there a world in which I can come and underwrite on your paper and get back to what I do best? And that's exactly what we've delivered for him in Navium, which is one of our Pine Walk cells. And Clive's, well, it's been a runaway success, to be honest with you, Navium, and the collaboration with Fidelis Mothership has been exemplary, and he loves his job. He comes down Lime Street very early in the morning and skips into work and deals with brokers all day and absolutely loves it. So we did that deal, and I sat there thinking, well, actually, that's what I want, clearly on a bigger scale, but the principles are exactly the same. Yeah, how do we free up me and colleagues to do what we love and what we do best? So it sounds like it's more about quality of life than it is about extracting the maximum value, or is it a bit of both? Yes, quality of life. Of course, we all deserve to be happy as human beings, but actually it's about the best returns for all the stakeholders, because how are shareholders in the 
MGU and the balance sheet going to do best and get the best outcomes, they're going to get that through me and others, but let's be honest, me focusing on underwriting as much as possible, on underwriting becoming 75, 80% of what I do, not 30%. I would say at Lancashire, it got as low as 10, 15% in the latter years there. I mean, that's really the principal driver for me wanting to get out of public companies because it's even worse in a public company. But at Fidelis, it's been maybe 30, 40%. But since we did the deal, and obviously it's still subject to regulatory approval, which we in no way take for granted, but de facto, our lives have changed to a large degree already. I don't have an office. I sit in the open floor with the underwriters. We have what we call a hotline system, where if a risk comes in, even if we don't have all the info, and the underwriters need an early steer on whether that risk is going to be attractive to us or not, they literally walk up to my desk, and I give them that early steer. I can't do that if I'm stuck in committee meetings all day. So already we've seen a further sort of juicing up of the underwriting pipeline. And it means that, you know, I always say to our guys, I want us to be first or if not first, second to respond to brokers on any submissions coming, particularly anything that's unusual or requires some innovation, which is something we do badly as an industry. And this structure frees me up to do that. But then, Dan, the flip side of that is then you're the guy who has to be in all these committee meetings all the time. I mean, how would you make a pitch to a new graduate to say, well, obviously, you've got Richard's sort of really sexy, exciting, fun business over here where you don't have all the admin and you don't have the committees. What's your pitch to that same graduate to say, no, come to my side. This is where the, all the real fun is going to be. Or are you more sanguine about it and say, actually, it's not really where the fun is, but it's incredibly important. And of course, you can't have one without the other. What's your pitch? The sell is quite simple. To start with, it's a groundbreaking transaction. It's changing the structure of capital in our sector forever. So bringing new talent in, I think, will be quite a simple sell. You know, you're going to have access to the best underwriting team, best underwriter in the last three or four generations with 38-year track record. But you're also going to have access to a balance sheet with incredibly good people, which will have a destiny of its own, obviously very much aligned to the MGU. But having both sides of that business is going to be really important in the sell. I get your point completely, but I think it sells itself, actually. And part of your value is the fact that you are attached to or you have tenure is it public how long the tenure you might have and how long are you guaranteed to have that relationship with Richard? It's a very long-term arrangement. We can't go into the exact detail, but I think the two main benefits we've seen for investors have been A, the track record and the ability for Richard to focus on the underwriting. I think that's critical, but also the alignment that is not just economic, it's cultural, that there are a lot of good people transitioning into the balance sheet from the existing Fidelis business in senior positions They've helped build the brand. They understand the business. And I think that's really important for investors when they look at this transaction. And is there a flip side to your commitment is that you have another commitment not to sort of run off and start backing every other MGA that's out there? Absolutely. Look, I'm running that balance sheet. I want to back the best people, the best underwriter in the industry is Richard Brindle. You already sold anyway, yes. Absolutely, 100%. But there's already been a shift, Mark. For example, and we're not staging this for your benefit. This is obviously has a benefit of being entirely true. We sat down on Thursday and I asked Danny for a bit of time to chat about our view of the cat world. We want to see what comes out of this week. But certainly we're of the view that the stars are now hugely aligned for sellers of reinsurance now in a way they probably haven't been since 2006 and possibly before that, the mid-90s. You have a combination of no new capital coming into the industry, ILS in its death spirals, increased demand driven by risk management and inflation, and many, many companies pulling back more and more from cap business. So the stars are aligned. We are not going to be jerks about it because we never are. We're always friendly to brokers. 
But the message is a very firm one. It's just if you want our capacity... It's going to be a brindle price. Well, yeah, if you want our capacity, pay our price. We're not going to be unpleasant about it, but we're not really subject to very much negotiation. So this is something I haven't had to do before, Mark, and this is a sign of how we all have to give something in this new structure for the greater good. It's no longer just up to me. I had to go to Danny on Thursday and saying, do you agree with that view? And he can say no. I mean, there is a perhaps a misconception here that the balance sheet does not have to do what the MGU says and won't do. And sometimes Danny's going to say no. So that's just a sign of how we all have to give something for the greater good here. He's got to go to that risk committee and say, you know, Richard wants to take yeah. a much larger aggregate risk on... Well, I don't think I said that, Mark. Well, well, it sounds like he's got the appetite. Now you're, you're feeling that the price is coming to where it should be and you would take more of that risk on your balance sheet, well, on his balance sheet, if he lets you. Take, take a bit more. We, like many people, probably wrote too much cat business in 2021. I think you know we've done a lot of optimization and restructuring work, and now we have a really an excellent reinsurance portfolio. It's, it's centered on clients we have very long-standing relationships with. We don't trade with a thinly capitalized, here-today-gone-tomorrow type of carriers. We're all very comfortable with the quality of it. The debate is, do we continue to retract with climate change, You know, bringing increased frequency, and there will be increased severity, or will the pricing be strong enough to sort of hold where we are? Or if we really get what we think we should get, which is a name perils market, particularly for the major seedants, where we don't sell all the perils in one policy anymore, and we actually carve them out into different pillars like we did back in the mid-90s, then that will release somewhat more capacity. I certainly wouldn't want you to think it's loads more, and it will go nowhere near the cat levels of 2021, but it might be somewhat and more And certainly not enough last. to change the pricing levels or the no. competitive dynamics of the market. Absolutely not. When you've got brokers, I don't need to name them, you saw last week heavy-hitting names from Gallagher's, Aon, and Howden's. Well, these are brokers, Mark. You know, this is quite unusual. Brokers saying, basically, we're screwed. We don't know where we're going to get our capacity from. When brokers are saying that, then what does that tell you? Absolutely. I've already done a couple of interviews with brokers, and it has surprised me how cautious they are and how effectively they're using the platform to actually almost prepare their clients for quite a lot of bad news. That they... That's exactly what they're doing. And it was normally, there'd been some sort of Dutch auction saying, if Guy Carp says come here, you get 9% off. Aon has to say, come here and get 10% off. And before you know it, they're, they're getting firm orders at 30% off. It's, it's not that kind of market, is it? Not at all, no. I want to pick up on something you said just a couple of minutes ago. Was, you said ILS and its death throes. Why do you think that? Well, first of all, I've never heard a group of individuals talk more nonsense than ILS managers when they describe their AUM. Because what, of course, they never do is tell you what the available to deploy AUM is, which is the only metric that matters. They'll tell you what their overall AUM is, and they include trap capital. That's ludicrous. The only relevant metric is how much business can you actually write? And all I can tell you, Mark, is what we see with our eyes, which there's a couple of honorable exceptions. But by and large, and Danny, you're more in this world than I am, so I'll hand over to you. But by and large, most of them have closed down or are dramatically reducing their capacity in the market. And that's as a potential user of their product, or you have used their product, or you would use some of their capital. Yeah, I mean, we've bought a broad range products over you know the lifespan of Fidelis and much of that is through ILS partners I completely agree Richard it's very difficult to get any transparency what is the actual AUM in that sector deployable at any given time and I think that's what makes this transaction so much clearer is we know exactly what the capital is we can show that to clients we can show that to brokers so I just don't think there's investor appetite we've been on the road talking to many different types of investors in the last couple of months and CAT is a big topic for them, and they just do not see the returns coming through the ILS carriers. 
We need to probably go back to the bifurcations. A couple of things that I'd like to ask. So asking you about with tenure, is it good to use an analogy of a sort of post-reconstruction renewal Lloyd syndicate where the names have got tenure and they can trade it? And so is that tenure tradable, the tenure of having the MGA writing for you, the Fidelis MGA? I think it's just best to say we have a long-term arrangement that will provide stability to clients and brokers. We've made a proposal to the regulators for the tenure. One of the reasons we can't discuss it, Mark, is it would be grossly disrespectful to the regulators. They're going to have their views and we'll have to have a conversation with them and see where we land. Well, I'll leave it to all my former colleagues who, I'm sure, through various disclosure mechanisms will eventually get the story out there at some point in the future when it's able to be put out. So I'll defer to them on that one. What's going to happen to Pinewalk, by the way? It's, I suppose it's already in this kind of structure anyway. I yeah, Pinewalk remains exactly as is. So it's, it'll be a subsidiary of the MGA business. Well, the Pinewalk cells are partly owned by their respective management teams and partly by Fidelis. Yeah. They will now be owned by the Fidelis MGU. We've got this value differential at the moment between fee-earning businesses and balance sheet businesses that have lots of capital. Do you think this is a, is it a secular change or is it something that's quite cyclical and may change at some point in the future? You know, Because we all know there are different points in economic cycles when cash is absolutely king and then, Danny, you'll be the king, won't you? Because <laughs> you've got all the cash. Or how much of it is a secular change? I think what Danny said earlier is absolutely right. I think it will take some time, but I think this is a game changer for the way that the industry's capital is structured. A few health warnings, though. This transaction was extraordinarily hard to achieve. You can't get the balance sheet done unless you have a very, very strong track record at the MGU. There aren't that many track records like that around in our industry, so that's hurdle number one. Secondly, you have to have exiting investors who are very grown up about the process, you know, and a tribute to our private equity original backers, CVC, Crestview, Pinebrook, who all accepted that this change was now happening, the genie was out of the bottle, so to speak, that they had to accept, in our case, partial liquidity via the monetization, capitalization of the MGU. They'll have to wait some time for their second tranche of liquidity via an IPO whenever markets are propitious for an IPO. Thirdly, you need incoming investors who are prepared to monetize and equitize the team adequately. MGA ownership pies, if you like, are differently cut from balance sheet traditional insurance company pies. That doesn't mean we're greedy, but it does mean that if we're going to create the sort of wealth that we think we're going to create in this MGU over the next five to 10 years, we need a big piece of the action. So the incoming shareholders have to realize that. And then you need, frankly, incredibly hard work, which it was for 10 months of back-breaking work, culminating in a call that went on till four o'clock in the morning. None of us had any weekends for, for months on end. And finally, you need amazing advisors. And you know, the Stuart Britton, Neil Badger team at Evercore were incredible. I have to pay tribute to them. There were so many points in the road where, you know, things nearly fell apart and we had to find new investors and there were deal-breaking moments and lawyers escalating quite unnecessary things to the edge of the precipice. But fundamentally, I think it is a brilliant transaction. And to your point, Mark, I had a whole slew of very nice messages from other CEOs the next day, a lot of them saying, we want to do this. <laughs> and good luck to them, but it's not easy. And I actually, funny enough, I don't see very many of these succeeding because you need that constellation of factors and that constellation of factors doesn't arguably exist in too many other places. What I love about this transaction is, as I've said elsewhere, it's one of those very rare deals where everybody's a winner. You know, the kind of banking cliche is in any deal, everybody feels a bit bruised. Well, nobody feels remotely bruised here. Private equity get a multiple they could only dream of through any other means. If we look at some really good companies now, including companies run by good friends of ours, trying to sell at the moment, you know, trying to get any material goodwill price above book value is very, very difficult these days. 
So that route is highly unattractive. IPM markets closed at the moment. Uh, strategics don't seem to be any buyers at the moment. The incoming MGU investors are essentially buying this business at a multiple of EBITDA, which is extremely attractive. And the balance sheet investors are getting a long-term binder with arguably the best underwriters of the market and poised to make some fantastic returns. So I honestly think, Mark, it's one of those very rare transactions where everybody's a winner. You're saying that no one got screwed. Who got screwed out of you too, then? Nobody. Neither. Nobody no, I, I'll just reiterate Richard's point. A deal where everyone walks away without absolutely everything they wanted, uh, but are happy. I think that's a great deal. I think just one other point, just to clarify, we talk about an IPO, which is the most likely outcome, but it's not the only outcome. There are other options available. Mm -hmm. So I think we should uh, just clarify that point for now. And obviously this is playing to, he's the underwriter and you're a core manager of capital. And that's the way you've always seen yourself. And that's what makes you happy. Yeah, absolutely. I've worked out this morning. We're into our fourth decade of trading together. You know, my former life as a broker, Richard and I have been through the most dislocated markets in the industry, and we've always found a way to trade through, and I, I think that will continue. And on this point about the MGA sort of being the new obvious home for talented underwriters of the future, I suppose most of them wouldn't now, these days, if they're younger than you, they wouldn't start with a balance sheet. They'll start with the MGA and they'll build it in the way that a dual or a CFC have done. So they won't have to go through what you're now going through because they would never have started in that way in the first place. I think that's the future. We're not there yet. We are still the outlier. But I think what this certainly does, Mark, is we are now the magnet for the best talent in the industry. Financially, absolutely. You know, we can deliver packages, if you like, for incoming teams of underwriters that no balance sheet can even begin to replicate because of the, you understand, the MGU economics that we have here. But it's also the culture. I think, you know, we could talk for hours about this, but we have a culture of hard work, of entrepreneurship, of always being the first to respond to brokers, of coming up with new policy wordings. And it's not for everybody, because frankly, there's a lot of people who, particularly post-COVID in our industry, seem to have lost their work ethic. And they just want to be in their living rooms half the week. And Lloyd's building is, continues to be empty, as far as I can tell. I don't know what's happened to people. There was a time when people took pride in their careers and wanted to work hard and achieve things. And yes, leave a financial legacy, but also feel very proud of what they've achieved. And in so many corners of our industry now, brokers tell us repeatedly, we can't get hold of an underwriter. And I think that's disgraceful. So at Fidelis, you work bloody hard, but the rewards are enormous. So, you know, is this going to work for perhaps an old school type underwriting team who take it pretty easy and quite often, you know, down Leadenhall Market having a few pints of an afternoon? No, absolutely not. That's not the sort of company we are. If you're young, ambitious, want to work bloody hard, get extremely well paid and have a career to be proud of, come to us. But, you know, and we're just working on our kind of pitch at the moment at Exco. But the basic philosophy, which is articulated by Danny, not me, is are you good enough to work for us? It's that way around. Here's the bar. Can you clear it? Because you've got to work damned hard. Forget about working from your living room. If you want to come to work, work hard. There's no better place to work financially and in terms of job satisfaction. But if you're going to come here and just fiddle around, don't bother. Yeah. I think the MG has just reset the benchmark for underwriting. And I think exactly that point. If you're good enough, then have a look at Fidelis. But it's a high benchmark. You'd come out with a high growth orientated valuation. You know, it's going to be a high valuation. Presumably that means you have a growth imperative now. You must grow. Is that true or not? It's a balance bar, like everything. That incentives for us at the MGU to make sure the business is profitable derive not only from my personal pride and, and job satisfaction and track record and pedigree over 38 years. You know, I've never had a loss-making underwriting year in 38 years. So I'm very proud of that. I don't think anybody else can really boast that. 
So the thought that we would suddenly kind of throw profitability out the window and go for growth is, no offence, is ridiculous. In addition to that, we're going to have a 10% stake in the balance sheet. I'm the biggest individual shareholder in the balance sheet. We also, about a, what is it, a third, or depends obviously on the profit, but you know, a large proportion of our fee income at the MGU will depend on the profitability of the business. So for all of those reasons, the thought we just kind of shove a load of business into Danny, even if he'd accept it, which is far too smart to do so, he's a non-starter. However, we are clearly now in a mode that we want to produce high quality income for the balance sheet and we want to grow market conditions allowing. I've always said, Mark, you've known me for a long time. If the market goes really soft, we should put our pens down. I don't think we're going to have to do that now with climate change driving cap pricing in particular and with a much more grown up regime at Lloyd's now, hopefully now avoiding the excesses of the past in specialty lines and with our strong growth in bespoke lines and our move into, and I hope we're going to talk about sort of product innovation at some point because it's a huge part of what we do, intangibles, for example, where we're now making a real pitch. I think we've got growth right across our portfolio, but we will never sacrifice the profitability. Yeah, let's talk about that. So you're going to set the bar very high, pitch to perhaps some of the sort of talent that maybe is going to have to come from outside the industry, I presume, particularly to all the intangible yes. cyber, yeah. this kind of thing. Well, I think so. If you look at our mortgage team, for example, they weren't traditional insurance people at all. Simon Crone and Mel Puska, who do an extraordinarily good job, and they came in originally just doing mortgages, and they're now looking at IP transactions, they're looking at asset-backed structures, SRT-type transactions. Ooh, what's SRT? Strategic risk transfer. So yeah, absolutely. I think we are very, that's a very good question, actually. It's not asked enough. I think we're very alive to bring in talent from outside the traditional underwriting channels. So what's getting you most excited about these future new classes of business or a class of business that's now been around that's still quite futuristic, cyber, for example, that may or may not be hitting growth constraints because of capital constraints at the moment? Cyber just, I mean, conceptually, it's great to have new products that are bringing new premium to the market. I'm all for it. Cyber just scares the bejesus out of me. I've yet to meet a cyber underwriter or broker who can explain to me how he or she thinks about risk. I've yet to meet a cyber underwriter who can explain to me how they aggregate their exposures or how they price for business. I think Josh Motter was very good on a recent episode. He's really worth listening to, actually. He's ex-CIA Goldman Sachs and everything else. He's had a really interesting career and he's a really good advocate for, for saying, stop worrying about a lot of the systemic risk is not systemic as you think it is, for example. If you think that, I don't know, Windows 10, oh yeah, well, 50% of the people have got Windows 10. Even if you could hack every Windows 10 or Windows 11 operating system, you wouldn't because actually it's quite labor intensive. There aren't actually enough hackers to do that, to extort the money from billions of people. You can't actually do it because there's only about 10,000 bad people anyway. I don't know this guy, and I can't comment on the individual, but I'll, but I'll restate what I just said. I've yet to meet a cyber underwriter who can explain to me how he or she aggregates their exposures or prices their business. And I stand by that comment. And of course, there are systemic events. But would you like to meet one? Yeah, sure. But anybody who tells you there is no potential systemic know, cyber, of course cyber there is. scenario. It is literally systems. It, yes. it is really out in the far fringes, I'm afraid. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's not credible it's to not me. It's not systemic until it happens. And I'll, I'll give you a good analogy on cap business. Funny enough, just chatting to colleagues last night, making the point that if you think about cap bonds and the whole argument about going to a named perils market, if you go to a named perils market, three of these sort of emerging risks in the last few years would not have been payable. So burnt, the German floods, because if you bought continental European RLWs, they would have been windstorm only. So you wouldn't have recovered for burnt. You wouldn't have recovered for the winter storm URI. That wouldn't have been covered on an A imperil policy. And COVID wouldn't have been covered. So my analogy there is, you know, just looking backwards and talking about Windows 10 or whatever is not the right way of thinking about this. You have to understand that the world is going to throw unpredictable scenarios at us. And if ever 
we've had a year when that should be proven. It's the last year when all sorts of stuff has happened in the world, the last two or three years, including COVID. I think, with due respect to this individual, who I don't know, I think to say there are no systemic cyber scenarios no, 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 out he there. Said, no, he said that there absolutely are, but they're less terrifying than you think they might be. What other classes? So the intangibles are you most excited about then? Yes, well, I mean, I think I'm allowed to say this. I think we've been working very closely with Aon. Yeah. Aon yeah. have made a very high-level investment in an IP fund. And funny enough, they poached one of our underwriters to go and run it, which is actually fine because he's a good guy. We'll be working very closely with him. This comes from, I think, from Krista and Andy Marcel down, doesn't it? Absolutely, It's yeah. right at the top of Aon. I'll leave them to tell you about their investment in this. I know they've invested a huge amount of money and time, and good luck to them. It's a very smart thing to do. And this is essentially taking intellectual property collateralizing it in some means or securitizing it, and then using that to allow these underlying companies to take out loans to expand their businesses. And it's very, very diversified. I don't really see any systemic exposure in that book. No. And it's based on intangibles. And I think Charlie Mathias, who's sitting with us here, has always said that what's that statistic about the stock markets, about how it used to be 90% bricks and mortar, 10% intangibles. Now it's 90% intangibles, 10% bricks and mortar. We can't just insure bricks and mortar in our industry. It's bloody ridiculous. We have to ensure all this other stuff. And this is a really strong start into what I think will be a, a massive growth area. So what you're saying about intellectual property, it can't aggregate because, of course, if it wasn't unique, it wouldn't be intellectual property. It wouldn't have a patent. Well, exactly. There'd be nothing yeah. to monetize in the first if it place. Was, if it was yeah. systemic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the other big phenomenon within this MGA wave, the secular wave towards underwriters working at MJs rather than working for balance sheet businesses, has been this hybrid carrier model. Again, do you think it's part of all the same thing? Or is there something slightly different about that model? And did it appeal to you or not to have taking, I don't know, 10% net retention to improve your position with the balance sheet? So don't worry, it's not just your money, it's my money too. So the MJ that has a small balance sheet that makes the, the other paper providers more comfortable Certainly, particularly in the US, there are lots of hybrid carriers now that are doing that. I think there's a distinction here that some of those carriers need to prove they've got skin in the game. Yeah. Just to show alignment. So because I, they're still quite new. Exactly. So I think, if you, you know, for them, it's imperative they have that just to be able to raise capacity to sit behind them. Here, this is just a fully aligned business right between the balance sheet and the MGU. We've really got to stress the cultural alignment is critical here. That's yeah. very appealing to investors. Obviously, you've worked a lot with other third-party capital providers since you founded Fidelis. So I presume you have the first dibs on everything that Richard's seen, but I presume you're still going to want to collaborate in certain situations when you need more capacity. Presume this doesn't stop you just working together to bring on third-party. Yeah, look, I think, as we said, we said earlier, you know, the balance sheets, the poly appeal is to create its own destiny. But for now, you know, the core business is with the MGU. That is the future of the insurance group for the next few years. And the existing quota shares, for example, that we buy at Fidelis, traditional Fidelis, if you like, will carry across into the new structure. A quick thing, kind of slightly trivial question. It's become fairly obvious to me during this interview that one of you needs to rename yourself something that's not Fidelis, this or Fidelis MG, Fidelis balance sheet. Which one's going to do it and what are you going to call yourself? Well, not at all. I, th- I think the alignment's critical and Fidelis has become a market leader of outperformance over the last few years. So we'll both be proud to share the Fidelis name. We'll reveal it at some point, but it won't be too far from what it is now. And I think it's imperative we both keep the Fidelis name. It's going to have an F and an I and a D in it, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Amongst other letters. Brilliant. Okay. So what's your message to all those brokers 
that you have constantly on the phone, I'm sure, now trying to reserve your capacity. Is it what just get your submission as good as it can possibly be and get it in as early as possible? Yes, I think that's a very fair message indeed. We've we had that discussion yesterday. We're happy to go early with some clients for significant capacity if they're prepared to, to pay the price. And that applies to CAT treaty business. It also applies to specialty business. Obviously, the specialty reinsurance market is set to disaggregate now. Hard to tell at this stage exactly how that will break. But I think the days of buying all your specialty lines on the one XOL structure are gone now. And again, you know, we've got a couple of companies we're going to be talking to this week who we have excellent multi-class relationships with. And we'll say, look, do you want to do a deal? We'll come up with our ideas about how we disaggregate the specialty exposures and we'll offer you substantial capacity on a private or semi-private basis. I think this market, Mark, just accelerates the, the end of the subscription market. I think now the bigger carriers like us, but also some of the smaller nimbler carriers are just going to do their own thing, the kind of DE Shaw way of doing things, if you like, which I've always had a, a lot of admiration for. They just say, you know, we're not going to be jerks about this, but that's our price. And if you don't want to pay the price, I don't really see what there is else to talk about. Rather than this painful posturing of the past, which you referred to earlier, I have 10 points off now, I'll give 15 points off. And then you all capitulate at 31.12. Well, exactly exactly yeah. right. And <laughs> I don't know if you remember, Mark, but on the 3rd of January, I very deliberately, and I'm afraid it was in the Insider, but I did a piece and I described exactly the word you've just said, capitulation. I said, here we are in a world, and that was then, it's accelerated since then, of 10% inflation and at least a 5% annual load for climate change. The market had charged a 7 or 8% rise, and they're all busy patting themselves on the back saying, haven't we done well? And somebody needed to say, no, you haven't done well. In fact, quite the reverse. You've just given a 7% reduction after four of the biggest five cat year losses in history. On what basis are you congratulating yourselves? And it's what's interesting, and I will claim some credit for this, but there are other broader forces at work in the zeitgeist. Here we are, seven, eight months later, we're in a totally different world. CAT has gone dramatically out of favor in boardrooms right around the world. And the whole game now for brokers, hence all their positioning with these interviews last week, is to say, how the hell do we actually get our clients to understand that if they want coverage, they're going to have to stop trying to play us off against each other, come up with these infantile offers of plus five, because you're just going to get a giant raspberry from the market. We as brokers have to have the mandate from you, our clients, to get real now. Because if you want the expiring capacity, plus probably 10, 15% for inflation, because there's going to be a lot of demand for new top layers now, where do you think that capacity is coming from? You know, is it coming from the moon with cheese on it? Where is that capacity? So it's time for everybody to get real now and stop talking crap. And when you say the end of the subscription market, obviously everyone's had spreadsheets for the last 30 years. So of course you could have had composite pricing at any time you wanted because everyone knows you can place 10% at one price, 10% at another price, 5% at another price, and you end up with a price. And that's what you pay, you know, to fill your order. You fill it up at lots of different prices and it doesn't really matter. You can still add it up to something. And I think the difference is over time, perhaps X years ago, 80, 85% would be at the market price. And at the margin, you might have Berkshire or Fidelis or DE Shaw doing a deal. Now that core placement is, I don't know, 15% and everything else is verticalized. And it comes down to you being happy with your price and that is your price and that you trade at that price rather than having to wait for the market to tell you what price you can clear at. Well, absolutely. But you know, with really good clients, there's always a dialogue to be had and a really broad-based client will have other programs they buy and maybe there's a deal to be done if we say we'll get to have some of that and have some of that and if you give us that we'll give a bit of price relief on top whatever it is there's always a bit of trading we're not totally adamantine but there isn't much wiggle room mark because the price is the price is the price these days 
Yep. And you mentioned before about specialty market potentially disaggregating, or you, you want to disaggregate it, so you want to turn it back into lots of different silos and towers, etc. How did you view the Ukraine loss? Was it just a business as usual loss for someone? If you write war, then there's war. I mean, it was hardly a surprise to anyone that Russia might invade Ukraine, since they've been fighting in the east of Ukraine for 15 years already. How did you view it as a business as usual type thing or something that is a bit of a watershed that has cracked something that's going to change? I think an absolute watershed because it's about how the underlying business is underwritten. So if you look at the Terra PV business, how that was underwritten. So it's all sort of worldwide at the moment. Well, the two mega brokers had these facilities. I'm not criticizing them. I, I'd have done the same if I were in their shoes, but they had these incredibly lax facilities where not only were there blind following mandates for all the following markets, but the leaders were able to compete on price and the cheapest one got the order. Then they'd bind the whole market. We've heard horror stories about large exposures in Ukraine, which were bound leader only. There was one where the sum insured was increased threefold, a sunflower crushing plant in Ukraine, as Russian troops were massing on the border, leader only. So these are the sort of market practices that have to stop. And indeed, I think they will stop. From what I'm hearing, these Facilities which are one-one facilities are going to have to completely change. And then, you know, war business, aviation war business written on blind follow facilities behind leaders, all this sort of stuff has to stop. And indeed, we will only reinsure people for those sort of exposures if we can satisfy ourselves that they underwrite that business professionally. Because you can't underwrite a political violence, terrorism war book without actually understanding world affairs. We have security specialists, and they're not some bunch of ex-SAS people in London. They're all over the world from different perspectives, different cultures, speaking different languages, who we can tap into at any time to look into any situation in the world. You know, for example, on, the, on that scary weekend with China and Taiwan, and everybody thought, you know, is China going to go across the Taiwan Straits now? We were in contact with them all across that weekend, giving precautionary notices on some of our business to protect us against that escalation. So yeah, the answer to that question is the way those lines of business are underwritten have to change. It's far too sloppy, and it's exacerbated the market exposures. I think I've run through all my questions. So well, it only reminds me to thank you so much for very generously giving me your time at this really busy time of year. And good luck with getting the deal approved and signed and sealed. And we'd be really looking forward to seeing what you do now that you've unshackled and unshackled Mr. Brindle. A dangerous proposition, <laughs> I think. Thank you, Mark. It was thank, a great pleasure. Much, Mark. Thank you so much. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>